This Tridio production is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and made possible by you, our listener. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit tridio.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 31. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss the latest episode of the hit series, Doctor Who. Today, we're discussing the ninth episode of Season 10, Empress of Mars, featuring another of the classic Doctor Who monsters, the Ice Warriors. Uh, Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken from San Diego. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Don. And Father Corey Stika from Malta, Montana. Howdy, howdy. So uh, d- things might be a little different today, folks, as you listen. Just a little uh, technical uh, background. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not in my usual podcast studio. I'm, I'm coming to you uh, from my family vacation. In, uh, we're in Maine on Great East Lake. Um, and so if you'll bear with me, I, I don't have a, a, a quiet place to go where I can uh, be without noise around. So you may hear a boat in the background or the kids uh, yelling as they're playing in the, in the water. Uh, so if you'll uh, bear with me and, uh, and, and make accommodation for me on that case. Um, and we, you know, if we have technical difficulties, uh, we'll, we'll try to make, do our best uh, around them. I figured you were going to record from that beautiful lake view patio that you sh- you posted on facebook <laughs> no, i i was tempted to sit out there but that's even louder out there but uh i'm, I'm sitting next to uh as uh next to an, uh, a nice open window as the uh, lake breeze blows in on us which is nice uh, uh not quite the ice fields of mars uh especially today where it's going to be 90 degrees where I'm sitting. Um, Ooh. Yeah, so, so let's jump. Good day to go jump in the lake. Yes, exactly. Uh, and it, because it's Maine, it's ice cold, uh, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> so let's jump right in. Um, the Empress of Mars uh, was written by Mark Gaddis, a longtime uh, Doctor Who writer. has written for the pretty much the entire run of the new Who since 2005. He, uh, he's got nine episodes um, mm-hmm. His most recent was Sleep No More, uh, which mm-hmm. was the, the most recent season. Uh, but he also wrote uh, Cold Warrior, which was involved the ice the, the only other Ice Warrior episode in the New Who. So uh, he's Mark Gaddis has a thing for the Ice Warriors, apparently. Yeah, there. Uh, I've seen an interview with him, and they're one of his favorite villains. And this was kind of his dream episode to write. Um, he, he all, because we've seen the ice warriors, like they appeared four times in the original classic who, and then he brought them back in new who, but we've never seen them in their own environment before an ice warrior story on Mars. And so he apparently went to Stephen Moffat and said, I'd love to do this. He was already writing a sequel to sleep no more, but he said, you know, you're leaving the series and I don't know what my future with the series is going to be. And this is kind of something I would, I would really love to do. And Stephen Moffat let him do it. Yeah. I'd heard a rumor that this is his final episode writing for Doctor Who. He's moving on. So, uh, this was kind of his, this is his last shot, his last gasp. He wanted to have, you know, kind of his dream episode to go out on. 
Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that he got that. Um, I'm all, I, you know, I guess Chris Chibnall, the next incoming showrunner could invite him back, but you can't count on that. And he may not want to come back anyway. Um, but, uh, him moving on to my mind is not altogether a bad thing. Uh, his episodes on Dr. Who to my mind have actually been kind of mediocre. Um, I like, I appreciate Mark Gaddis as an actor. He plays Mycroft in Sherlock. Um, he's also a writer and showrunner on Sherlock, and I think uh, he's done a lot of great work there. Um, but here on Doctor Who, his his episodes have had a number that I thought were subpar. Which is kind of sad, because correct me, didn't he write um, the story for an adventure in space and time, the, the, yes. the history yeah. of the establishment of Doctor Who? He did. Uh, so for the 50th anniversary, they did a docudrama um, about the beginning of Doctor Who called An Adventure in Space and Time that took us back to watch the beginning of the show in 1963, which they dramatically recreated. And it was really well done. Yeah, um, it was excellent. I mean, yeah, it was phenomenal. very good. Had a lot of, I mean, it had humor. It had some very poignant moments with uh, the character of William Hartnell, the first doctor, and how he became the doctor, but as an actor, he was at a point in his career that he had some problems, and he ended up having to leave the show, and and it was a fascinating kind of character arc there where he was as the doctor. I mean, he was the one and only doctor. There had never been another doctor before him. And so he was identified with the part. And even though he was having problems in his personal life, he was like soldiering on to keep the show going, to help all these other people keep their jobs. And he thought he was irreplaceable. And then the idea of regeneration happened and changed everything. And it was a very poignant, well-done thing by Mark Gaddis. I I, I don't know what it is. I I think Doctor Who in the current era has kind of suffered from a lack of structure and rules that make it more fanciful, more whimsical. And I think that can harm the writing. But when you add more rules, like the real world rules of an adventure in space and time, and suddenly the drama comes into focus and and it tends to be better to my mind. That's an interesting point to make there, Jimmy, which is that um, a lot of people have questioned, like, why is it that, um, uh, Mark Gaddis and Stephen Moffat on Sherlock seem to do so well with uh, the writing and the creation of the story, and people just—it's just fantastic. And yet, many people—I'm um, not necessarily one of them—but many people sort of th- they think that their work on on Doctor Who is subpar. I, I would say I think Stephen Moffat has been great for Doctor Who. Uh, in on on the whole, he's had his ups and downs, but it's been. Yeah. Un, I will I will say it's been uneven. Um, uh, I would say also say that this is probably Mark Gaddis's best episode of of Doctor Who. It was, mm-hmm. As I'm thinking about them, mm-hmm. but yeah, but maybe that's the maybe that's the key. What you just said, which is is in Sherlock, they have to abide by a set of real world physical rules i mean they they, they bend it a little of. bit yeah they bend it a little bit sometimes but there's at least a, a boundary that they, whereas with doctor who because of the nature of the story you can pretty much do anything and 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 just wave a hand at it as we've seen them do um maybe they shouldn't 
but that's sort of how they've operated. And I wonder if that freedom has been too much freedom for them as they've as they've written it and created it. I, I think so. I This is something I've thought about in connection with Sherlock before, too, because you have the same two guys doing it. Um, it's also a difference between New Who and Classic Who. Uh, Classic Who, although it was a science fantasy series, had more rules to it than the current version does. What we have now is almost science fairy tale at times. Mm. And the Classic Who you know, suffered because it had lower production values, which it in itself imposed some additional rules. Um, but it, and it also had the slower pacing of television at the time, but it did feel a little more realistic and a little more authentic at times as a result. That's interesting. Uh, so, so something to keep in mind as we, as we go through this and as we're looking at, again, the last season of, uh, of Stephen Moffat's, uh, time at the helm of Dr. Who, and and something to look forward to to see maybe how um, uh, when Chibnall takes over next season how he um, changes that or whether he could sort of continues in the same vein It's just how in, a new showrunner will will handle that. Um, so uh, and the the only other uh, production bit just I want to throw in there was that the director is once again uh, Wayne Yip who um, comes over from the. Class, the Doctor Who spinoff that's going on right now, and who directed last week's episode, The Lie of the Land. Again, I think he does a better job this week than uh, than yeah. than last week's episode, um, with some caveats. But but that might be some of it might be the writing, some of it may be the directing. But I'll I'll talk about that as we go along. Um, so let's jump in. So we open with a uh, a nice CGI recreation of Cape Canaveral at NASA. Um, we see the the vehicle assembly building right there uh, at uh, the space center. Um, presumably, it's present day. Doesn't say, but uh, that's sort of the presumption. And for some reason, uh, the doctor Bill and Nardole are hanging around in the uh, in the flight control center for a a Mars uh, an unmanned probe to Mars, um, which is if, from a real world perspective, that's not where that would happen. <laughs> That uh, you know, right. a, a, a an unmanned probe is is going to be controlled from usually from Jet Propulsion Laboratory out in California. Um, they only mm-hmm. launch things from Cape Canaveral; they don't control them from there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but Cape Canaveral is the more recognizable exactly place with the big building, you know, especially, the assembly building. Yes, especially internationally. You know, uh, an American audience you might be able to get away with you know re- referencing Jet Propulsion Laboratory or even Houston. You know, if they were. I was going to mention Houston. Yeah, Johnson yeah. Control Center, where the where they would do a manned mission. But uh, I'll, I'll forgive that. I mean, that's a that's a minor point, but uh, just kind of uh, throwing that in there. Um, but so. Do- the Doctor Bill and Nardole are hanging around here. I- I- I'm not sure. Wh- it's never. I don't know if it's ever really explained why they're there. I mean, it sort of says they're on a field trip, but you know, they they happen to be there at the right moment <laughs> uh, as the mm-hmm. space probe Valkyrie is um, is going to you know reveal some big you know a big moment. Yeah, they. In terms of why they're here now, Doctor Who is famous for having people, the TARDIS, take people coincidentally to places they need to be to get the story going, and that's part of what we have here. But it's also another chance for the Doctor to barge in and appear larger than life, yes. which is one of <clears throat> one of the things that uh, has kind of become a trope on Doctor Who, where the Doctor just arrogantly strides in somewhere and takes charge of a scene, and it's a chance to make him. Look look cool but it's not my favorite trope 
Right. Well, and it's funny the way they they kind of produced this this uh, wrote and directed this scene because it's it's got this like um, uh, Armageddon movie, you know, the big big blockbuster movie feel to it in the sense of like it's dramatic tension and dramatic music and a countdown and this space probe and. And then they kind of deflate it with, you know, the doctor just kind of coming in. I love a good countdown and, and sort of uh, <laughs> poke a hole in the in the, the sort of self-important drama, I guess. Um, yeah. So it, all of this apparently just being a MacGuffin so that they can get this image uh, back from under the polar ice caps. Uh, someone having assembled a, a, some writing that says, God save the queen. Um, and that's uh, the doctor gives that smile that he gives there's not as much the creepy smile from last week uh at the uh, end of the opening teaser but uh much more of a the doctor loves a mystery i guess is the is is the way it kind of comes across um and then we cut to the opening sequence so anything uh do we need to say anything more about that that opening teaser and that is any, anything left the uh, the flight control center's American accent almost works. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, uh, it almost feels authentic. Uh, they do they do their best. Sometimes I wonder if like they, if they should just bring you know, yeah. fly a couple Americans over. But uh, well, yeah, and there, there are American American. There got to be a couple American actors that are floating around Britain somewhere that could fill in those roles. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They have now, obviously, whenever they interact with Americans on Doctor Who, this is an issue because normally they're dealing with British actors. Um, there's a famous case, though, from Classic Who where they had an American accident disaster of the First Order. Um, they hired an actress named uh, Nicola Bryant to be oh, yes. a companion for the Sixth Doctor, and she was married to an American and so had American citizenship and passed herself off as American during auditions. But And they wanted her to be the first American companion of the Doctor. But wow, does she not have an American accent? I mean, she tries, but but it is not an American accent. <laughs> no. I personally, I like Nicola Bryant. I think she's a neat person, but but her accent is 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 not authentic. It's like when people try to do Boston accents who aren't from around here, like uh, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, doing a uh-huh. Boston accent in uh, um, uh, the the uh, Black Mass. Oh boy, was that a bad accent? Uh, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, Brits doing American accents probably not as it probably as bad as Americans trying to do British accents. Probably so, not as bad as the Cockney Dick Van Dyke, though. <laughs> That's probably probably not. Um, so uh, we cut to after the opening sequence. The uh, we see the TARDIS flying to Mars. It's not actually materializing there, even though it's going back to 1881. Um, so we could presume that it's uh, sort of traveling by through space and time at the same at the same time. I guess uh, it's mm-hmm. it's a neat little opening image. I guess is uh, is is the way that we get mm-hmm. to, we get to see the the TARDIS against the backdrop of Mars. Um, they they step out in their spacesuits uh, in a in a cave. Uh, they just materialized underground because the ice warriors had an extensive cave network, according to the doctor. Um, and uh, they they have this back and forth about uh, the movie Terminator between Bill and the doctor. Uh, he hasn't seen it, and she says you'll like it. It has killer robots, and he says, "Oh, I'll put it on the list." Uh, which is kind of funny given how often the doctor has run into his share of killer robots. 
<laughs> she yeah. also references the John Carpenter version of the thing and tells him you'd like it. Everybody dies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know we're still um, we're still establishing this idea that Bill is sort of a pop culture fan. She's a genre fan. Um, uh, and as I, someone online was saying, you know, if, if Bill wasn't in Doctor Who, if she was like, a, a, you know, a real person, she'd be a Doctor Who fan. You know, she just comes across as mm-hmm. that sort of person. I, I, now, I want to say, you know, sort of here, I feel like in this episode, Bill was the most companion-like of all the episodes so far. If This is the episode where she feels like she's settled into the role of the Doctor's companion, as as much like any of the other previous companions. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Okay. Father Corey? <laughs> Father Corey? No, no, it's, it's, we're both kind of waiting for each other. Yeah. You know, I agree with that. You know, one, one thing I'd seen online or heard um, is this was more classic who of an episode, whereas the companion isn't quite the, you know, out in front, charging let's you know let's go it's kind of more passive following the doctor following what's going on you know not not quite as uh direct shall we say yeah i i think i agree i think that um that uh, bill has now settled into the role of companion although there are a couple of bumps in that regard that we'll talk about later but i think she she is coming across she's this is no longer the total Oh wow! This what a new experience for me. She's gotten somewhat used to having these experiences, and you're right. She's not the focus of the episode the way a companion needs to be early on when they're being established. I saw a little bit of not so much criticism, just as an um, sort of a little pointed observation that this was a uh, a boys a boys only episode in a sense. Uh, this is a bo- a boys uh, adventure. You know, you have classic mm-hmm. uh, Victorian era. Uh, British soldiers of the uh, of the of the empire, um, you know, fighting, um, uh, you know, implacable enemy, you know, guns, uh, and Bill sort of doesn't have a whole lot to do. She sort of gets, you know, shoved in the background a bit, um, and it's really the Doctor's show. Yeah, I don't know if it's because of her gender in this case. Um, I think a male companion probably would have, you know, played a similar role. Um, but given the nature of the story material, I mean, you wouldn't have a lot of women along with a male military contingent in the 19th century. I mean, you could have had officers' wives. Mm-hmm. And frankly, if you wanted to go super realistic, you could have had camp followers, too, <laughs> um, to use a slightly opaque term for yes. a very old profession. Um, but uh, but you wouldn't have had a lot of women along in an environment like this. And especially given that they went to Mars by spaceship, if they had been embarking on an expedition like that, it's implausible they would have brought their women along. Um, so there is a kind of a, a male slant to this episode just by the nature of, you know, half of the, um, of the characters involved. Um, this kind of touches though on one of my criticisms of Bill. I don't, uh, in this episode, I don't know if you want to touch that here or wait till we get to it in the story. Uh, it's up to you. I mean, we can, we can, we can uh, kind of go along and, and bring that up as it goes. Okay. Yeah. So okay, I'll I'll hang on then. Okay, um, so the you know, the next the next step that happens uh, as they're you know sort of wandering around, they find a campfire, 
um, which means there there must be oxygen. I guess is I'm not sure that's the only explanation for fire in that uh, environment. It could be other sorts of gas that burns. I would think, but uh, okay. Um, I'm not sure why there's a campfire here, but again, that's it's you know let's let's go with it. Um, yeah, I assume why the was British there also a campaign? One. Yeah, yeah. But why was there also a campaign tent? Right. Well, so I mean, because apparently this wasn't their campsite. Their campsite was several layer, levels lower because that's where. Isn't that where Bill ends up sliding down the hole to? Yeah. Um, so uh, it uh, whatever. I mean, that's fine. We, let's we have to have a little bit of suspension of disbelief to let the story kind of develop uh, without having to take two hours to to set up the premise. So I'm, I can I can live with that. I, what I like about this scene is is how we see this dynamic between Nardole and the Doctor, where Nardole sort of keeps taking some of the Doctor's role like so some of the things that the that would if it was just the doctor and bill the doctor would do it but nardole sort of kind of preempts him so we have him you know the the whole thing about taking your helmet off and the doctor i'll take my helmet off to make sure because i can survive without oxygen and nardole just pops it off like nope it's oxygen (laughs) and basic (laughs) physics (laughs) basic physics um the 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 thing that always gets me about this kind of scene though where as soon as people realize it's oxygen they take off their helmets is they don't think about okay what else what other gases could there be here in addition to oxygen like (laughs) cyanide or could there be deadly microorganisms floating around in this oxygen exactly exactly that's that's the funny thing is you know there's only ever one possible explanation um one one interesting note about spacesuits and not just in doctor who but in all uh, tvs and movies is they always have uh lights Around the inside of the of the the glass, um, which is the worst possible design for a spacesuit, because of course, when you shine a light on glass from an angle, it becomes a reflection, and you can't see yeah. out. The only reason for those lights to exist is for you illuminate the face so that they can be filmed properly. Um, so that just exactly it's just kind of funny. Um, so we we uh, Bill wanders away from the campfire uh, and finds herself sliding down a hole uh, in. In the uh, in the tunnel, uh, all the way down to um, well, she to this lower level where she comes upon a, a door, and we we st- we kind of stop right there. Meanwhile, the doctor is you know back up at the top of the hole, and he sends Nardole back to the TARDIS uh, for um, uh, the uh, so for some climbing ropes. And what happens is, is um, the Nardole goes into the TARDIS, and then the TARDIS takes off without him. And it uh, or or takes off uh, autom- on with automatic, yeah, with a minute, uh, takes off auto- like you know on it's it's running on cruise control and and goes uh, what we find out back to the doctor's office, and we never ever we never actually get an explanation for any of this. It sort of just happens, um, and yeah. No- there is an, a behind-the-scenes explanation. Um, <clears throat> the behind-the-scenes explanation is uh, when they were originally developing the scripts for this season, Nardole was not a companion. And then Matt Lucas expressed an interest in doing some more Doctor Who. 
and they invited him on as a companion and then asked the writers of this whole stretch of episodes, can you find a way to put Nardole in here? And this was Mark Gaddis's solution for this episode. So he already had the basic story and he kind of bracketed uh, Nardole in at the beginning and the end of it to mm-hmm. give him a role, but didn't make him integral to the story. So that's the real behind the scenes reason, but you're right. They never give us an explanation. The most they give us is Nardal when he goes to the vault and starts talking to Missy, he says the TARDIS is acting up and I need your help to fix it. Right. And I guess I mean they're they're using it in some way to the, the to develop more of the Missy story arc, which we can yeah. which we'll get to at the end. Uh yeah. but uh it, yeah, it's so we, you know, to kind of close out the loop with with uh, Nardole, he gets back to the to the doctor's office. Can't get the the TARDIS to take him back to Mars. He goes to the vault, and Missy sort of says, "Well, it'd be easier if I showed you." <laughs> and he, we leave the <laughs> we leave uh, Nardole uh, with that dilemma of uh, does he trust Missy? Um, meanwhile, back on Mars, uh, the doctor hears something coming through the tunnel and sees this ice wa- uh, warrior. Uh, coming at him implacably, um, and what we have is we, we've the, the, we've written a classic misdirection. The 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 British soldier comes in, and you know it yells, "Hey, stop you!" and uh, get away from him. And the and and the doctor thinks the British soldier is defending him when the soldier's defending quote unquote Friday, uh, which is the Ice Warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the and you know the soldier doesn't know who the doctor is and and so so it's a classic you know misdirection trope of uh, that we get here, um, but the doctor says something about uh, uh, you know he greets the ice warrior something along the lines of uh, I, you know he was once an honorary guardian of the Tyvonian hive or something along those lines and I'm I'm guessing this is a reference to the that earlier ice warrior mm. episodes from classic actually. Actually, it's not. Um, the the although the doctor has interacted with an alien race called the Tythonians before, or Typhonians, I forget which one it is. Um, it's it has nothing to do with the Ice Warriors. So the best way that I know to analyze that line is it's a reference to an to a non produced adventure. Okay. There's something that happened in the Doctor's past we've never seen. Okay. Um, but it it does provide an opening to talk uh, briefly about the history of the Ice Warriors on the show. Yes, let's do that. Um, they were first introduced in the second Doctor era, Patrick Troughton's era. Uh, they appeared in an episode called The Ice Warriors. That was their first appearance. In this episode, it was set several thousand years in the future when Earth was battling an Ice Age. And so you had humans trying to combat the Ice Age and keep a little bit of warmth on the planet um, using technology. And while this is happening out in the snow, some scientists discover uh, a, 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 a basically a bunch of uh, ice warriors frozen in a spaceship and they thaw them out and then they interact and the ice warriors are the bad guys in this episode so they they try to take over the human base and it's a base under siege story um, but that's the first time we meet them then uh, they come back later in Patrick Troughton's era. They appear in an ep- in a series called The Seeds of Doom, 
And that was set in the later half of the 21st century, so just a little bit in our future, where Earth has been has developed a kind of teleport technology they use to ship supplies around the world to urgently needed locations. And the Ice Warriors try to hijack that teleport system to deliver these seeds that will poison our atmosphere to make it more like the Martian atmosphere so they can then invade Earth and take over Earth because Mars is is a dead world, basically. Um, then they appear twice in the third Doctor's tenure um, in a... Uh, in an episode called The Curse of Peladon, the Doctor takes his companion Joe Grant to a planet called Peladon, which is joining a galactic federation that includes several races, including the Ice Warriors. And the Doctor initially is thinking, I've fought these guys twice before, they're bad guys. But no, they subvert the audience's expectations, and the Ice Warriors are actually good guys in the curse of peladon mm. and so they have a kind of ambiguity as a race they can either be good or bad and just human um, then uh the come oh, another uh kind of standout alien in that episode was named alpha centauri uh looked kind of like a cyclops with a sort of insect body with six legs kind of looked like a big green hot dog <laughs> um, and had a high shrieky voice. It, we were told in that episode that Alpha Centauri didn't have a gender. It was an it. Um, but it, it looked so crazy that, and people can Google Alpha Centauri Doctor Who if they want to see it, but it looked so crazy it was kind of a standout alien for the fans. Well, of course, uh, we do see Alpha Centauri at the end of this episode. Oh, spoiler, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's what's significant. Yeah. Um, that's that's where Alpha Centauri comes from. It's from The, the Curse of Peladon, okay. and its sequel a couple of years later, The Monster. Peladon, where the Doctor and his new companion, Sarah Jane Smith, go back to Peladon and get involved there. And there, once again, the Ice Warriors have become bad guys. Um, then, And that's it for Classic Who. Then Mark Gaddis brought uh, them back again in the episode Cold War during the 10th Doctor's time, Matt Smith, yep. uh, which was set in 1983 on a Russian nuclear submarine, apparently during the Abel Archer military exercises that almost led to World War III. Right. You know, uh, I did see some uh, indication in the, in the post-show interviews that um, this episode was, in some senses, a, a prequel slash sequel to The Curses of Peladon, Episode. I mean, the obvious connections with yeah. Alpha Centauri, the Galactic right. Federation. Um, it's it is funny. Um, Mark Gaddis said at at one point that uh, that his understanding of the Curses of Peladon that there was you know with the reference to the Galactic Federation was that it was the 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 Federation. Okay, I'm sorry. It was um, we had a little breaking up there. The uh, I think the uh, yeah. Alpha Centauri was coming into my uh, Skype, uh, but but uh, I, what he was saying was that um, that was a, the the whole Galactic Federation uh, storyline was a bit like um, uh, a, a a light reference to when Britain was entering the European Common Market, and mm -hmm. so this episode he almost made a commentary on Britain leaving the European Union and uh, and Brexit. Uh, thankfully, he left that uh, on the. <laughs> on the writer's room table and, uh, and it went with a slightly different take on it. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting to have all this history 
Uh, and yet, as someone who hasn't seen those episodes, you can still enjoy this episode for what it is. And that's a that's a tricky balance, I think. Mm-hmm. So, um, meanwhile, Bill, uh, who's been separated from the Doctor, she has her own sort of uh, interesting encounter. Uh, a, she comes to a door, it opens up, and it turns out to be a, a British soldier in a steampunky style spacesuit. Um, the Captain uh, Catchlove uh, is uh, the name. Uh, C- Catchglove. Uh, uh, maybe. I, I, so I, I saw an IMDb, it called him Catchlove. Maybe it was Catchglove. Oh. Um, but the interesting, there's lots of interesting names. We have Catchglove, uh, we have Colonel Godsaker, Jackdaw. Jackdaw. Uh, the in, so um, uh, Sergeant Major Peach. Um, Mark Gatta said that uh, he gets his names for these characters from uh, cemeteries, Victorian-era cemeteries. These are actual names uh, of folks. And he says it's the best source for names for writing, which is very funny. <laughs> um, when, I would, when I used to write uh, uh, fanfic, I would, I would mine the newspaper, and I would, I would mix up uh, first names and last names to come up with names. Get, coming up with names is hard. It's, it's harder than you think it is. Um, I actually have a a book of of character names by culture so you if you need a, like a, a a spanish name you can flip and it'll show you a bunch of spanish names if you need an icelandic name you can flip and find a bunch of icelandic names that's awesome and should be uh, either an app or a website or both that would be <laughs> yeah probably is these days yeah um so um Meanwhile, uh, we we Bill is reunited with the Doctor and with Colonel Godzaker, Captain Catchglove, and they're they're having a tea. Um, and I I found it very funny, you know, uh, while while Colonel Godzaker is complaining how they're short on supplies and low on morale, they're they're he was offering her several different kinds of tea, Indian or uh, Chinese, and they're you know dining on silver service. And uh, I guess you know low on supplies is a relative. <laughs> It, it, it means different things to different people, I guess. But uh, uh, you know, we must—you know—it's the British way. We we must keep up uh, civilization, even as we get we're getting low on supplies on an alien planet. Um, what struck me about this scene is they have initially Captain Catchglove or whatever his name is serving the tea, but then um, the commanding officer whose name i'm blanking on rings a bell and uh friday the ice warrior then starts collecting the uh the tea service Mm -hmm. and that just struck me as incongruous it should have if friday was serving the as was functioning as the servant in this scene he should have been serving the tea as well so i can only suppose they had the captain doing it as a way of getting the characters to interact more but it didn't ring believable to the victorian customs of this time also they they missed a great line in this episode that they just totally should have done um because uh you have they they explain they're explaining the name Friday for the ice warrior and um, the captain looks at, at Bill who's not getting it and says, man, Friday, like in Robinson Crusoe. And he should have added, it's a book because <laughs> Bill has been, ex- has been referencing movies up to this point and to have her not know Robinson Crusoe, the book would have been funny. Well, and that's, the, that's, was- that's what I felt like they were trying to do in this uh, case is that they were they were trying to make that that funny um pop culture compare you know um reference so just like she was doing yeah. with the doctor uh, but you're right exactly. like, 
they didn't they didn't close the loop on it and maybe they were maybe they were trying to be subtle about it but uh, it might have been a little too subtle um yeah so god's uh, colonel godsaker uh tells he says um they found friday in his uh crash in his spaceship in the south african veldt uh where they were serving and um uh and the psychic paper conveniently says the doctor and bill were were on board the spaceship the whole time that's how we were here how- <laughs> How does that make any sense? How, what does the psychic paper actually say? Right. You know, I mean, these two people were on the spaceship the whole time. Uh, you know. Yes, and again, this is some new use of psychic paper. <laughs> this is well, the psychic paper has become the uh, like a lot of things, a, like a little golden, a uh, little piece of magic that they can wave a wand with and 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 gloss over any story troubles. But I'm guessing this is part of oh, we have to write Nardole into the episode. Um, so now that we've gotten rid of the TARDIS, we have to give some reason for them to be there of some sort. I, I don't know. Um, or maybe mm. this was the problem was there all along. But it was it was a bit odd. Um, fr- Friday asked God, uh, Godseeker to fix the spaceship in return for treasure. But what would a 19th century British officer know of repairing a spaceship? Uh, oh, yeah. Th- I was going to say, speaking of, of glossing over story problems, <laughs> you know, the captain says he's been working on fixing the spaceship now that they've crashed on Mars. It's like, how does a 19th century person fix a spaceship? I mean, <laughs> if he's if he's a Jules Verne hero type guy, okay. And they've even done that a little bit in, in Doctor Who in the past where they had 19th century inventors do fancy stuff with, with tech. But, um, but this is a, just a military, a couple of military officers. How do they, how do they help at all with a spaceship, especially once they've crashed on Mars? Because it's not like they have the resources of Earth to draw upon and maybe like refuel its water tanks or something. Right, exactly. It was... It, it, yeah, it, it was one of the the lesser less believable aspects of it. Again, <laughs> it's it's sort of typical of the Moffat era where we get these stories where we have to you know we it's an enjoyable romp, but there are these holes in the plot that we just have to kind of glide over uh, and, and to enjoy the thing. But uh, so you know we we kind of turn a blind eye and and let it go and say um, uh, you know we we get to this they're 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 mining for. Uh, Treasure that uh, that's supposed to be here using the gargantua, which is a great a, a great thing. You know that they do, instead of just building a mine, we're, we built a mining laser out of uh, one of the guns from the spaceship. We have to give it this name, <laughs> which is a yeah. it's, it's sort of a, yeah. a steampunkish sort of thing to do. Is it's a gargantua, and maybe that's what this is about. Maybe what all this is about is is we're supposed to be getting this idea of. It's not just the 19th century, you know, Victorian, uh, uh, you know, uh, era. It's a steampunk era that that they come from, uh, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Sure, uh, we, we can go with that. Um, anyway, <laughs> the the and as the doctor says, uh, the whole idea is to claim Mars for the Empire, to to loot it of its riches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you know, which is a bit of a, a a reference to how Britain sort of claimed, you know, large swaths of the of the planet Earth. Uh, for itself in the same way, and this is actually less bad because they um, they as they point out later, Mars is a dead world. So as far as they know, it's an uninhabited world. Right. You know, mm-hmm. claiming it and taking its resources, it's not like you're oppressing anybody to do that. So uh, yes, exactly, and that, and as far as they know, at this point, um, and in it does make it a, you know less morally problematic. Um, 
I have to, I want to say at this point a uh, sort of an observation that kind of caught me in in this whole section which was I I like the characters that Gaddis has created here and I think that's the strongest part of this episode you know mm-hmm. the the colonel colonel Godzaker who you know has this past of the where he was a a coward and who only survived because of a, a quirk of fate and you know the sergeant major is that crusty British sergeant major, and you get Jackdaw, the guy from you know from lower class, who's always looking to make a buck. I mean, you have these these great different and, characters here. Yeah, and the guy who has the girl back home who wants to get married. You know, he that was a great oh, yeah. character, right? And and even Friday. I mean, Friday's not just a big you know glump. He's he's got a he's got a, a motivation. He's got in and he's not just an an, uh, an enemy in disguise. He has these co- these complex motivations going here, where his loyalties are not. He's not just a, a flat. I'm a warrior for the Ice Queen, but he's about you know he's more about I'm I'm interested in the the fate of my people. Um, so I. Mm-hmm. I, I I like the fact that you know that you know whatever time they didn't spend on developing the backstory for how they could fix a spaceship and how the doctor uh, got, you know uh, convinced them he came on this on, on the spaceship. They spent that time developing these characters and uh, I'm right down to Catchglove, who's you know the classic arrogant jerk <laughs> twirling his mustache yeah. uh, as he goes. I mean exactly. There was a couple of times where he had a, some nice hair flips, you know, where he uh, ran his finger through his hair to flip his hair. I just wanted to smack it off his yeah. face with the uh, <laughs> he, he he doesn't literally twirl his mustache. He's not using mustache wax as far as we can see. <laughs> that's, but that's he does he does have this interesting vibe going as a character where he's very charming and very affable, but there's this sinister undercurrent with him too. And he keeps doing slightly insubordinate things that cause the colonel to knock him down a couple of times and say, I'm in charge here. And then we finally find out the reason he's able to be so insubordinate is he knows the truth about the colonel and how he was hung for cowardice. And the, the reveal on that is very effective and it causes a lot of those pieces to suddenly fall into place. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so I, yeah, uh, kudos to the for the develop the character development here. Um, so the the doctor kind of has a he has a nice little a line here where we kind of get the sense of the, the ice warriors as a as a complex people. He says you know the ice warriors they they build a city out of Mars sand then drench the skies with its blood. They could slaughter a whole civilization then weep at the destruction of a flower. Uh, you know is is sort of building them up as this you know this. People who have, you know, they're they're violent, but they yet they are sensitive. Um, and, and of course, Bill takes the 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 opportunity to go, oh yeah, just like the the Vikings movie with the with the Kirk Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> and I love yeah. the way they drop in the the Vikings reference without revealing at first that she's talking about a movie, and then it's another movie <laughs> reference, right? <laughs> Well, I thought it was kind of effective too, where you know you, you hear the motorized as, as Friday's hand, you know the motor motors in the, his fingers, but then he picks up that china very delicately. Yeah. Yes. Well, this and then, was something. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. This was something that that you know has, uh, I guess, been something I've been kind of tuned in on uh, because the ice warriors have the most ridiculous hands in the world. (laughs) And this is especially true. If you go back and look at their earliest appearances, they're basically, they have just kind of opposable clamps for hands. There are no real fingers there. And in fact, the design of their armor is, looks really comical when 
the older versions. And so, and interesting as they are as a race, they look, especially below the head, they look really terrible and, and very implausible. Um, they have these kind of bulbous thighs that look ridiculous. And over time, they've, uh, they've improved the design. <clears throat> and so, seeing uh, Friday be able to hold a delicate little china tea plate in his hands uh, was something that I thought they pulled off uh, much more effectively than in the old uniform design or costume design for the Ice Warriors. Um, In the Cold War episode, they actually established that the reason for the armor is it's not just armor. It's also like biomechanically linked to them so they can do fancy things with it. And they actually do have long spindly fingers under there. So, um, so they've tried to redeem the initial costume design a bit over the course of time. Yeah. That's, they have a thing about these like creatures within, um, within armor that's integral to their being, you know, whether it's the Daleks, the Cybermen or the ice warriors. I mean, that's, uh, you know, three of the four major species, uh, you know, of, of uh, I hate to mm-hmm. call them villains, but, they're, you know, because they're, they're, it's more complex than that. But, you know, let's say villains have this this, this interesting uh, biomechanical connection. And I'm, I'm, I don't know if there's, if there's a, a, a bigger reason for that or, or just whether it's just convenient uh, to storytelling. But I, I find it interesting anyway, um, something, to, something to keep uh, in the back of my mind. So we have uh, the you know as as they're finishing up this conversation, uh, the they the gargantua breaks through into the uh, empress's stasis, stasis chamber or or tomb they call it. But uh, we find out later she's not really dead; she's in stasis. Um, the doctor intuits that this is a hive. You know, he says that you know that we we've got to be careful here. But Catchglove, you know, he immediately wants the doctor and Bill tossed out. It's it's a military matter, he says. Uh but again Godzaker intervenes and then um the doctor tries to tell them well, you know, look, Friday was using you to get back to Mars. Um you know, you don't belong here. This is this is his planet. And Catchglove has that classic line, you know, that sort of uh that 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 line where you say this is where you're where you've sealed your own fate uh, don't belong we're british mars is part of the empire now and you you just know that that hubris yeah. is going to come back and bite you in the yeah. butt <laughs> <laughs> i i like in this sequence where the doctor is talking to bill in this kind of portion of the show where the doctor is talking to bill about how i'm not going to take sides here and he spells out the logic for her of look these the these um, you know the British people are clearly the inv- the invaders here, and they're up against tech that they have no chance of winning against. What am I supposed to do? Um, and so he's not going to just automatically defend the humans. He's going to try to negotiate on their behalf, but he but he's not willing to cast the humans as the good guys in this situation. And he he illustrates that to Bill fairly effectively, I think. Yeah, it's very it's very subtle. It's 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 nuanced. I mean, this is not a humans good, aliens bad story, and and it's and it's good because it, and it goes it goes back and forth as we go through it. You know, everyone, no one's hands are clean, and and but no, and no one is exactly a villain here. Um, and it, right. they they carry off that balance for, fairly well. Um, yeah, the humans are not all bad. This is not a human down down humans episode. This yeah. is this is humans being humans. 
Right, and it's not even just a is you know war is bad um, episode. It's 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 again it's a little more more subtle than that. Um, so we have Jack Daw who shows up, uh, another uh, classic character type, uh, the the the, uh, the lower class guy who's always looking to score a buck and and to get around the rules. I suppose um, he drugs the sergeant major um, and then tries to steal from the tomb. Uh, presumably, we don't actually see it, but presumably Jackdaw um, is removed from the table, shall we say, <laughs> uh, when the queen awakens and grabs him by the neck. Um, the the, the I, I didn't catch the name yeah. of the uh, of the, so, the 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 black soldier. Um, I, I I didn't see that at all in the in the listing. But um, he he doesn't die at this point, but another soldier does in this very mm-hmm. gruesome way with this the the weapon. It sort of like turns you into like a ball it's crunchy yeah down. <laughs> it's really gruesome so there's a little bit of backstory on that yeah in the original ice warrior episode you know they had this gun that they that built into their arm that they would shoot at people and as a special effect for that what they would do is they would film a character the character who's being shot in this kind of metallic mirror-like surface but then they would warp by pulling on the mirror it would make the person's image kind of sort of seem to fold up a little bit. And so when they came time to, and then the person would be dead. Um, And that's the special effect they used back in the 1960s for this. Um, So now that they have the ability to, with CGI, show a much more dramatic special effect, they said, okay, let's take the distortion of the original special effect and just carry it, to uh, to its logical conclusion, the person really is being folded up, oh. and so you actually, if you listen closely, you can hear their bones. <laughs> the bones snapping. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, oh uh, yes. So it, it is quite gruesome now. <laughs> it's gr- it is quite gruesome. Um, so the uh, the Empress uh, gets the the bad news from Friday that they overslept by five thousand years. Uh, they apparently were were sleeping to sort of. Um, Wait out their enemies. Uh, you know they were at war, and they were going to sleep and then arise again uh, at, at an opportune moment to to, to attack their uh, their enemies uh, and overslept. Yeah, but, but by the way, by the way, notice the kind of at this point in the story, we're starting to get some overheated rhetoric, especially from the Ice Queen about I have been resurrected. Right. Okay. No, you haven't. <laughs> you were you were you were asleep in. <laughs> And now you woke up. It's not exactly dramatic as a resurrection. Right, right. You just asleep and now awake. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. But they're yeah. ramping up the rhetoric, you know, and they will continue to do so with the rise, my ice warriors. I mean, who talks like that? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> exactly. I could have thought it almost like Wicked Witch of the West, you know, that kind of. I'll get you, my pretty. You know that kind of. <laughs> yeah. There, there was yeah, there, and your little dog canine too. Well, there yeah. was, I thought <laughs> I thought she sounded a lot like the Borg Queen from Star Trek. That was a, the, that overheated sort of rhetoric from the from it's the Borg similar, Queen. Similar type of character, very much so. Yeah. Yes. I've been watching a lot of Star Trek Voyager, so I'm 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 still up on a little of the Borg <laughs> uh, uh-huh. language. Um, so. Uh, Catch Glove goes off half-cocked, as expected, and uh, demands satisfaction of his honor because he's, he's been insulted, um, asserting privilege without knowing what's, what's really going around him. He's really, really arrogant. <laughs> and this guy really, really needs to get a comeuppance. Um, 
Meanwhile, Godzik turns to the doctor for help, and he, who knows just what to say. You know, you you must cooperate in order to survive. Is what he says. You know, like so, the the ice warriors can't survive on Mars without help. He you know, kind of lays it out for her, um, and then the and the the queen she turns to Bill. It says as a you know as a female for her opinion. Yeah. You know, with all these noisy males. Um, <laughs> Okay, so this is one of my two problems related to gender in this episode. Um, the whole turning to Bill thing, just because she's female. I yeah. mean, if you're an ice, if you're a Martian, <laughs> you're. I, I, one would think that species is going to be a more important criterion in terms of seeking opinions <laughs> right. than than gender. Um, I, I know if I'm a human, I'm going to want to talk to get counsel from other humans, regardless of their gender, before I say, oh, you from another species, you happen to have similar reproductive anatomy. I want your opinion. You know, that, <laughs> right. that does not make sense to me. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I, I thought that was ridiculous. Also the explanation, we are both surrounded by these noisy males. Okay, lady, you're noisier than any of the males in either yeah. group. <laughs> well, exactly. That that idea of that affinity that like the the you know girls got to stick together sort of thing comes from a you know a cultural cultural connections that you know that uh, that women played similar roles in different cultures, but you know, like you said, across alien species, it, it doesn't work. It does. It's yeah. It yeah. It, it's this is this is this is SJW pandering. It's imposing our culture on a situation where it doesn't apply. It feels well, like, and, you know. Look ahead. at the. You look at that scene. Bill is nowhere to be seen at all. You can't see her until that exact moment. Exactly. She is, means nothing until. Oh, let's throw this thing about women in. Now we'll put Bill in the scene. Yeah, and frankly, how does an ice queen even know what a human female looks like, especially in a in a pressure suit? Exactly, it, it's it feels like a bit of an apology on behalf of the the, the you know the the, the writers directors. Um, sort of like we know there's been a lot of guys talking around, so we need to we need to bring in the you know the the woman so that we don't you know don't get accused of overlooking the the woman in this episode. I, yeah, I, I mean. And that—that's the real function here—is to make Bill more central to the plot. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they—they uh, they sound retreat. Uh, someone shoots off his rifle by accident, a itchy trigger finger, um, and uh, they sound retreat. Um, I noticed that Catchglove is the first one out of the cave in the retreat. I don't know if you guys caught that one. He's—he—he he, oh, yes. he leads the way <laughs> out of the cave. Um, he bravely and, ran away, Sir Robin. Bravely ran away. <laughs> <laughs> run away, run away. Um, he, he uses the uh, um, the gargantua. Ends up sealing the cave, uh, which only delays the inevitable. Uh, and they don't get that. You know, th- these people live underground. They know how to dig. Um, Kashkov. Uh, he uses the opportunity at, at this point to out Godzikers as the coward who was hanged for desertion and s- survived, and thus by t- taking command at the at the at the uh the crucial hour um and then has Godzaker and the doctor and bill thrown in the brig um now at this point uh Godzaker's you know kind of questioning like who are you people really and bill says we're sort of police which the doctor doesn't like that idea but you know that's what he is but Godzaker laughs at this idea of a woman in the police force um I, one of our uh, our listeners uh, Bennett who's who's uh, lives in the UK who's helped us a bit with British um background 
says that this actor who plays Godsaker is known for a, a long-running TV series um, in which he plays a he's a retired detective who works on cold cases uh, under the leadership of a female officer, police officer. So mm. that this guy would be laughing at the idea of a female police officer might might be a vague connection to that. Um, okay, well that that adds a new layer of of interest to it. Um, but this is my other problem with gender in this episode, right. uh, which is Bill's reaction to this guy. Um, it's it, entirely given that this guy is from 1881 in England. It's entirely predictable that he would laugh at the idea of a woman on the police force because that didn't happen back then in that time and place. Um, but Bill gets all irate at him for having this reaction. And it's, it's, it's not implausible that Bill would, you know, just unthinkingly say, we're kind of like police. Okay. From her perspective, that's having a woman on the police force is totally normal. So you, what you have here is a clash of perspectives. Um, and that's an interesting thing, but then Bill gets all irate on the guy and starts to tell him off. And she has a bit of a funny line in that she's not going to just accept these Victorian values, even though he is in fact a Victorian, as she realizes as she says it. Um, <laughs> I felt like that so was. That's, I felt like that was what what Gaddis actually intended. There was this, like she would get all irate, and then she'd get a little cup up and by, by you know, like you can't judge a Victorian yeah. era person for having Victorian era attitudes. I I, and, I felt like that was more of a comeuppance for Bill in this case. Well, yeah, I, I, I agree. I kinda, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I felt like that actually was kind of a natural reaction. You know, what do you mean you, you're not going to have women in police force? Women are in police force in my time, but you're not from my time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? well, I, I agree that, that Bill, you know, it, it just turned back on Bill a little bit here, and, and it makes for a funny line, and I like that. But the vehemence of her initial reaction, I, I would think that as a companion, this is not her first time encountering people from another culture. This is not her first time encountering people from the 19th century. She's been to the 19th century and walked around in the Frost Fair in 1804. So um, she's already encountered people from this time period. You would, And she's clearly a smart person. So she would be able, I would think, to just shrug off that kind of thing. One of the consequences of time travel or world travel, for that matter, even today, you don't travel in time. But if you go to other countries here on good old planet Earth, you're going to meet people from other cultures with other attitudes. And you can't instantly be taking SJW outrage on them. Um, you, if you're going to travel, you, to a certain extent have to accept people and their attitudes as they are. And that's one of the things about Doctor Who. You know, he's he and the companions typically have a certain acceptance of the differences in attitudes, even if they don't agree with them, of the people they encounter. But then there come lines where something really morally important is on the line and they push back against the values they're encountering. But this kind of stuff, someone laughing at the thought of a uh, person uh, who's a woman on the police force isn't really that different than Bill suddenly being awkward encountering her first completely blue person. That's right. And and she should be a little more accepting of people's differences in that regard, I thought. 
I guess I kind of felt that that was kind of the point of that scene was saying, mm-hmm. you know, you know, because there, there's, there's, unfortunately, it's, it's all too common today where people look back at thoughts and behaviors of people 100, 200, 300 years ago and expect them to act like 21st century Americans or Western Europeans. And it's almost kind of saying, you can't do that. You know, they, they were, they were living according to the norms of their time, but their time considered to be perfectly normal. You know, an example mm-hmm. would be like Abraham Lincoln should have seen black people as 100% equal to him. And, you know, and it's like, well, but that wasn't the norm of the time. Well, you can't expect him to treat black people then as we do, as us white people do today. In general, I you think. Know, as e- yeah. I was going to say. I'm sorry, just to kind of bring it around. In general, I think what happens, and it's happened in Doctor Who, happens in a lot of uh, uh, different shows and stuff, that um, other cultures are given more of a pass than our own. So our own history, our own culture, um, you know, the, our own past um, is, crit- is critiqued much more intensely than than if we were to critique uh, an African culture, an Asian culture, or an alien culture, uh, to get, you know, mm-hmm. for, for that matter. So, uh, uh, but it, it does, and there's a certain logic to that. Yeah. It, my complaint here is just this was unsubtle writing. You yes, and I I would think Bill is experienced enough as a traveler. She's clearly a smart person. She should be more ahead of the curve than she is in this scene. All right, I guess I, I guess I see it as uh, that maybe Gaddis was was poking fun at that attitude by her comeuppance in it, but uh, but mm-hmm. maybe not. I, I, I guess I mean we can, you know, in the absence of of confirmation by the uh, by the writer himself, I, I suppose we'll just have to kind of uh, look at it uh, in different ways. Um, but I, I see your point. I, I, I mean, it was it, yep. in 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 object in objective terms, it was over the top her response. So. Um, so from this point, the Ice Warriors uh, kind of they do an end around. Uh, literally, they come up through the floor behind the soldiers, uh, and we have this battle ensues. Uh, meanwhile, the Empress is waiting. They outflank at- them in three D. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah, exactly. Two D thinking, like Khan at the uh, Battle of the Mutara Nebula. Um, yeah. <laughs> so meanwhile, <laughs> I was gonna I gotta bring in Star Trek references. That's me. Uh, meanwhile, the Empress is waking up the whole hive, um, and then. Friday comes up through the floor of the brig, and and you know at first we're 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 afraid like he's attacking, uh, but it's he comes up with this he wants to work with the doctor to to bring peace to to, to end the fighting. Um, Godsacre, given the opportunity, he runs off. He, he proves to be you know his his cowardice is is taking him, and he runs off. Um, meanwhile, the the doctor sends Bill to distract the Empress with talk of peace, while the while the doctor goes to uh, to to. To the gargantua. The gargantua. He's going to dump the whole northern ice pole on them, freezing them in an eternal winter, like Frozen, which apparently is the one movie the Doctor has seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his, his reference there. Notice notice he says, geography is not my strong point, which is <laughs> crucial because later when we see the surface, it's not covered by an ice cap at this point. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, he, uh, so so his whole um, his, his threat is an empty threat, ultimately. Um and we get the 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 sort of that idea we must live together or die together, uh, um, and and it's about to work. The Empress is is about to you know agree apparently when Catchglove the idiot <laughs> inserts himself again, um, 
And then Godzaker returns just in time. He's thought better of his, his cowardice. He returns just in time to kill Catchglove and then offers his life to the Ice Queen in exchange for uh, the lives of his men, um, redeeming himself in his, in his previous cowardice. <clears throat> he asks that... The, by, by the way, yep. I really like how they play <clears throat> uh, the, the Colonel's uh, story arc here because when he's asked by Bill... What happened? You know, why did you? Why were you being hung? He's really honest, and he just says it was it was cowardice. He he didn't make any bones about it. Right. Uh, he says I thought I had what it took to command, and I didn't. And they don't play him as an unsympathetic character because that's the tendency. Um, you know, if you have someone who deserts because of cowardice, the natural thing in the writing is to then play them as just a sniveling coward who's unsympathetic. And he's not. He does he does have continue to to struggle with this issue, but he's played sympathetically and he redeems himself in a way that I, I want to give Mark Gaddis props for some fairly subtle writing here. Yes. Um, and so I thought this I thought this worked well. And and in fact, it's I like the 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 interplay with the Empress. You know, um, he asks her not to judge mankind by Catchglove's cruelty or Godzaker's own cowardice, and she gives him this respect. And and you know, she she sort of gives you know the the misdirection again. You know, uh, you will die uh, honorably for your men, but this is not the day you will die. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. Yep. Um, and. Uh, there's an interesting line at this point, but a little interplay between the doctor and Bill, where she says, you know, you knew that would happen. And he says, always been my problem, thinking like a warrior. And it's a very interesting fact, because the doctor has never wanted to be a warrior. And we saw that with the, 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 the war doctor, um, that where he, you know, he reluctantly takes up that role. Um, he's, he's the reluctant warrior. He's always trying to run away from, from violence and war, but always... It, it it stays with him. So um, we we we're sort of wrapping things up here. We actually have several several moments where that would be a, a denouement and end you know an end to the story classically. But we have the, these these successive endings. The doctor not as many as Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I was thinking exactly <laughs> that thing. Uh, I, uh, yes, um, that's a whole other tangent. Doctor sends out a message uh, to any spacefaring species so that the ice warriors can live on, and uh, we get this message back from. Uh, the the creature Alpha Centauri, which we talked about before. Uh, one thing that yeah. we, we didn't come up before is that they got the same actress from 1973 yes. to do the voice work. Yes, um, she's like 92 years old now. Her name is Isan Churchman, and she so she's still around, and she. Uh, uh, she uh, kind of came out of retirement to do the voice work for this, and how awesome is that? That yeah. is just yeah, no so kidding. great. That is fantastic. It's 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 part of what makes Doctor Who so great is this is this history. It's the depth of <laughs> of the show of of just so much there, um, and so it's how deeply ingrained it is into not just you know TV but into. British culture, you know, just it's it's such a part of of everything, um, and it was it was great. And so you get this moment where the doctor says, you know, it's the beginning of a new golden age, and he's sort of looking at this, you know, because he knows that eventually they'll be joining the Galactic Federation, and and this is the beginning of that. He's seeing the beginning of what he has 
already, already seen experienced. later. Yes, which mm -hmm. uh, talking around time travel paradoxes, it's difficult. Um, and then we see uh, they have before you know Alpha Centauri can come and get them, they have to put a message on the surface of Mars. Uh, that she can find. Uh, so the doctor, remembering what happened at NASA, climbs up there and they construct God Save the Queen on the surface, which and turns out to case, have a different meaning. <laughs> exactly. We've repurposed the meaning of queen. It's the queen of the ice warriors. <laughs> which is which is a, a very a, another great misdirection, because at the beginning of the episode, as soon as we saw God Save the Queen uh, on the screen uh, from the space probe, they play the... Uh, um, well, what we know is Hail to the Chief, but uh, is the song God Save the Queen uh, in, in Britain. Um, and no, it's uh, my, my Country Tis the Oh, right, 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 right. Queen. Oh, yeah, right, that's right. right. I was, I was, because Hail to the Chief is something different in Britain, but it's not God Save the Queen. Yeah, My Country Tis of Thee. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's very confusing. Uh, so, um, it has to do with time travel. It's very timey-wimey. <laughs> it's wibbly-wobbly. This is like my brain right now. So finally the TARDIS <laughs> shows up again, uh, and uh, the doctor gets on board, and Nardole says, now before you get all frowny, which I thought, I love that little phrase, before you get all frowny, <laughs> and the doctor sees Missy at the controls, and he's very concerned, um, and he kind of says to her, this is not what we agreed to. I'm going to have to put you back in the vault. And she agrees. And so it's this sort of, yeah. is this the new touchy-feely Missy, or is this all part of a, a plan that she's got yeah. going? The way Michelle Gomez delivers the line when she just says, sure, she, she sounds, you know, humble and vulnerable and right. sincere. And so, you know, I really like seeing, I mean, I know it's not going to last forever, but I really like seeing this aspect of Missy. Right. And, uh, you know, I kind of hope they, they let her be redeemed through the rest of this incarnation, or at least through the rest of this season. Yeah. Um, even if we get some other masters of a slightly less enlightened attitude coming along. <clears throat> you know, I want to say, by the way, um, you know, I was really down on how uh, the director shot a lot of uh lie of the land but that scene where the where you see missy behind the time rotor and it kind of rotates to show her full full face i thought was so cool well, yeah i think there's a little visual symbolism there too because you get this reflection thing of her like there's two of her for a second yeah. and i think it's kind of symbolic of her changing attitude as a character well, and there's also a very subtle uh, f uh, facial acting that she does there. Like, when you first see her, she's got that that sneering face that you expect to see on the master or Missy, you know, that she, and a couple times in this episode that when she, when we, when we heard her voice before, um, she sort of had that sing songy uh, menace when she first talked to Nardole. And there's this subtle back and forth we're seeing in the acting of, of, uh, Michelle Gomez here, uh, where we're not quite sure we're off we're off balance when it comes to Missy. It one second she seems to be a new Missy, and one second she seems to be the old Missy, and and it's keeping us off balance. And I, it's it's great it's great directing, but it's also great acting. I mean, she's so wonderful. I, yeah, it is. I love, mm -hmm. I love her in this. So, um, we definitely yeah, you definitely see kind of the the battle inside of of Missy of do I go back to my old ways or do I commit to this change. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, and then we get the non-cliffhanger cliffhanger. 
which was what sh- the the where, the line where she goes to the doctor and you know she he's he's said uh, you know I got to put you back in the vault and she's like sure but first tell me are you really all right wham oh, end of episode right and she sounds really concerned. Um, I mean, sincerely concerned for the doctor. And so we don't know what happened there. Did Nardole say something to her? Does Nardole have suspicions he's not shared with the doctor or the audience about whether the doctor is okay, but he shared them with the with Missy to help motivate her to come? What's going on here? We don't have the context for this question. And it just comes out of the blue. Are you really okay? And that gestures at a whole world of possibilities that mm. creates a cliffhanger out of an otherwise straightforward line. And so, you know, norm normally we have a some kind of visual danger we're confronting as a cliffhanger. And here it's just an unexpected question. <laughs> Which again that is yeah, that is a great that is a great way to end it. Yeah, just that it's a simple question, but it raises all kinds of questions uh, behind it. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm. 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 It gave me a little more hope, and I thought they were going in another direction, but it gave me a little more question, I guess, about. Uh-oh, um, oh, it appears we've got some freezing up going here. Uh, yeah, you 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 chopped up there a little bit, Jimmy. Okay. Oh, um. Well, I'll just I'll say it again then, real quick. It 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 creates a little more question in my mind about has the doctor actually been in the process of regeneration since Chasm Forge. Mm. And maybe Nardol is on to that because they did tell us he went without a helmet for too long. He should have died. Right. And right. so I wonder, I don't know that they're going to go this way, but they could if they wanted to. And and the TARDIS automatically returning to Earth like that. I mean, when, it, you know, when the Doctor regenerates, that affects the TARDIS as well uh, very often. And I wonder if the TARDIS mm-hmm. sort of misfiring like that is, is she sees that as a symptom of something going on with the Doctor. Uh, right. Yeah, she might have gone back to get Missy yeah. to help the Doctor. So, very interesting. So, as a whole, um, I like this episode. It's, it's mm-hmm. uh, the best episode we've had in a while this season. Um, certainly better than, mm-hmm. the, I felt like, than... Um, any of the, I, I felt it was better than any of the three monks trilogy. Although I liked Extremists, um, I think it was even better than that. I had it felt like the Doctor Who style that I've enjoyed so much uh, over the years. Um, it had a very strong, for me, a, a little Edgar Rice Burroughs feel. Yes. that Victorian British Empire feel. What did you guys think, Father Corey? I, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. It's probably one of the tightest episodes we've had. You know, where there wasn't a lot of sloppiness to it. I mean, we mentioned, you know, talked about some some of the writing where there was a little bit of weakness. But, of course, everything's going to have that. Um, but it was probably one of the tightest episodes where you either didn't have the running scenes. You know, Classic Who is known for the running scenes because they need to stretch <laughs> out the episode another 30 seconds to a minute or whatever. So, let's have the corridors running. Right. But it also didn't have the the, the really quick jumps of logic like some of the episodes we've had too you know right. where it's just all of a sudden oh it's it's biological that's the threat to the earth you know <laughs> things like that how about you jimmy i i i liked it i enjoyed it i thought it was the most enjoyable mark gaddis episode in a long time and i thought it was certainly better than the second two parts of the monks trilogy i'd have to think about whether it or extremist was better okay okay 
So, um, great, and I hope people let us know what they thought. Uh, we've got a few, few, a little bit of feedback already, but uh, we, we're always looking for more. Uh, so yeah. next, next time on Doctor Who, we have the Eaters of Light, and I'll play the sound of the trailer now. Ninth Legion and the Keeper of the Gate. They disappeared. Except they didn't. Where is my friend, and what destroyed the Roman army? Something here managed to wipe out 5,000 Romans. Every hour of sunlight that feeds it makes the world darker and the beast stronger. So we're, we're going to see Romans again. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, and this is, by the way, uh, the Ninth Legion really was stationed in England and really did disappear around the year 120 AD. So this is an actual historical mystery they're going to be playing on. Ooh, excellent. Nice. Sounds good. Well, um, I think we've, we've pushed our luck as far as I want to push it with uh, Skype and uh, my internet connection. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, again, I want to thank people for bearing with us in whatever in, um, uh, Skype uh, issues that we've had a little bit. Um, I hope it wasn't too bad. Next week, I'll be back in my usual space, and we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. We'll have a top-notch production as uh, as usual so um again whatever you thought of the empress of mars let us know by uh, visiting tridio.com t-r-i-d-e-o.com or the secrets of doctor who facebook page uh, folks are leaving feedback there it's been great um we'll be we'll be back next week when we'll discuss this next episode the eaters of light uh until then father cory where can we find you online uh, my website's frcory.org, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter at frcorystika. Last name spelled S-T-I-C-H-A. And Jimmy, where can we find you? At jimmyakin.com. That's J-I-M-M-Y-A-K-I-N.com. And you can find me at betnet.com, B-E-T-T-N-E-T, uh, where you can find all my social media links. And, we'll, of course, we'll put everything in the show notes on trudio.com. Thank you for listening, and remember, R-H-I-P rank as its privileges when will i see you again uh soon i expect or later one of those 